0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let us pray. Father, what a gift it is to have your word, to read it, to be fed by it, and to grow to discern its insights. And what a privilege it is to teach it. Give us spiritual insight today to discern spiritual things as we walk through this text and study its contents. Help us not to neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Ultimately, Lord, show us the gospel. Turn our hearts back to you take hearts of stone and make them into hearts that love and serve you. In your son's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We've spent this summer reflecting on the prophetic ministry of Elijah, a man who in the midst of a broken kingdom, and a broken world, still finds hope on the horizon. It's worth taking a step back though and expanding our scope just a bit. You may know that in the histories of 1st and 2nd Kings, the narrative of Elijah the prophet seems a little bit odd. Most of that story in these books details a profoundly dark period in Israel's history. You know, in that story you have the rise and fall of Solomon, you have the division of the northern and southern kingdoms into Israel and Judah, and you have this long succession of kings and their escapades and war. All leading to the most tragic event at all of all at the end of 2 Kings with the Babylonian exile. So the Elijah story comes right in the middle of this history, at the end of 1 Kings, and bridging into the beginning of 2 Kings. So I think we are right to ask: what has God been doing with Elijah? Why is this story here? What has God been doing with Israel? What exactly is there for Elijah to have hope in? Are these stories just a breath of fresh air in the midst of an otherwise hard to read narrative, what is that hope on the horizon? If anything, narratively, it looks like the sun is setting on Israel rather than rising. As we near the end of the story of Elijah, we may begin to catch a glimpse of this hope in the call of Elijah's successor, Elisha. The Lord tells Elijah in the few verses before that call that Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Elisha then was supposed to be this instrument of justice and more than just him, there were 7,000 others behind him who would remain faithful. And the text doesn't waste much time in fulfilling this promise, briefly recapping these events in three verses. And so today we, we zoom in on this figure the man that the Lord has called to take up the mantle of Elijah's prophetic ministry in a somewhat he's somewhat unfortunately named uh, at least for my sake and pronunciation's sake his name is Elisha you know can you imagine if if Roy Williams successor wasn't Hubert Davis but a guy named Coy Billiams something like that it would have been so confusing who, who would have known what to say so bear with me as I work through these pronunciations so today we zoom in on that figure and the text provokes us to ask what defines the call? What defines this call of Elisha? We're going to look at the person of the call and the person of Elisha, we they're going to look at the weight of the call. And lastly, we're going to look at the implications of that call. I hope today as we unpack this call, we all begin to reflect on the callings the Lord has placed over our lives. Do you have a call? Can you describe it? Can you articulate it? Is that call in line with God's call? And whether you are confident in the calling you may have, or perhaps you're trying to discern your calling, or perhaps you're compelled that a call from the Lord has little to no relevance over your life. I hope that through this example of Elisha, we can see that nothing is a more compelling call over our lives than the call of discipleship, the call to invest in the ministry of people to participate in this mission of God to redeem the world, to answer the call to leave behind a life behind the plow and follow Jesus. So returning to our question, what defines the call? We first look at the person of the call and the person of Elisha. If you haven't already, please turn with me to 1 Kings 19, 19 to 21. We're gonna be sitting there for a bit. It's on page 301 of your red Bible. <clears throat> So we're looking at the person of the call, in verse 19. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed him by and cast his cloak upon him. We need to be somewhat careful before we get too far in describing the biography of Elisha. You know, there is this tendency in biblical application and interpretation to want to read ourselves into the narratives of these men. You know, this can become very much so a leadership lesson of sorts. We should remind ourselves that these are unique, historical accounts of singular men, singular men. Elisha and Elijah are unique men in this sense. Elisha was called to take upon himself the prophetic expectations of the prophets and leadership of Israel, just as Joshua took up the mantle from Moses. These things included a lot of things, but most importantly, perhaps they included a sword. Elisha was supposed to be this last line of accountability to the leaders of those outside of Israel, and if Israel themselves didn't take care of it, he was supposed to take care of it. So before we get too far into that, uh, we need to remind ourselves we are not taking upon ourselves a sword (laughs) to be this line of accountability. No, we are not prophets in this sense. I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I do work for a nonprofit. Um, so <laughs> I want to clarify that uh, in the person of Elisha, as Elijah's successor, we see this special capacity for the prophetic office that we do not have. So let's be clear about that. Similarly, we see in the verses just before, b- before verse 19 that this is an external call rather than an internal one in Elisha. If you look at verse 16, the Lord tells this to Elijah. He says, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of abel mahola you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So we can see that Elijah is responding to the person God has called him to, a larger call that God is doing throughout all of history at this point. I found this personally interesting. You know, just a year ago, I was finishing up seminary, deep in the weeds of the ordination process, and something I kept hearing during that time and kept getting asked about was the question, how did you know that you were called to ministry? Or something along the lines of, when did you personally begin to feel called? And you know, you hear all types of stories. For some, it was when they were 12 years old at a youth retreat, or perhaps it was one morning during a quiet time or perhaps over a long period of time, they began to discern that this is what they were called to. They began to get a personal vision for ministry. But in all these stories, there can be this pretty clear assumption that the call from the Lord is something that you must have during some private, personalized, internalized experience. In this sense, the call from God is something internal rather than external. But from what we can see here, is that it's not exactly about the one being called. It's not really about Elisha, but it's about the one doing the calling, right? God is doing this thing, and Elisha is just a small part of this remnant of 7,000 that the Lord is keeping faithful. So Elisha's response reveals he isn't thinking so much about himself, but he's thinking about the one doing the calling. How can his call become a part of the larger call of God? So yes, God's call is both unique and external, but we don't want to take this interpretation too far, okay? Especially with the case of Elisha. I want to say with the case of Elisha, his call is unique, definitely, but it's also not that unique at all. This call of Elisha it differs rather significantly from the call of Elijah just a few chapters ago at the beginning of chapter 17. There we see the Lord, the word of the Lord, it just appears to Elijah without any connection to his family, any allusion to a genealogy or anything. So with Elijah, there is this this gravitas, right? There's this imposing majesty within the character of Elijah, which keeps him at a distance from us, makes him more difficult to grasp or relate to. Not so much with Elisha. Elisha appears to us as, as any other person who must be someone of particular wealth and influence. He had 12 pairs of oxen, 24 total. We hear of his family, we read of his occupation as a laborer in the fields, and we read of the people that he would later serve food to, so we see his community. With Elisha, we can see a man we immediately feel more relatability with and have compassion with, and we can empathize with the potential pain that he must have felt at having to say goodbye to his mother and father and friends, at having to say goodbye to a life of wealth and comfort. And so, yes, the call of Elisha is unique insofar as it is a prophetic office that he assumes, but it is not unique in that the call simply depicts what God always has a right to do, and that is command our obedience. Ultimately, Elisha is a normal guy who is called to serve and be a representative of God's kingdom. And that should sound familiar to all of us. And this is actually precisely the point that Jesus is making in Luke 9, our gospel reading. You know, there it may have seemed like Jesus was being a little bit harsh, right? You know, one guy wants to bury his father, completely reasonable, and Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Yikes. Uh, To the next guy, we find a very similar situation as Elisha. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, so what's happening here is Jesus enhancing or contrasting the commitment to Elijah with a commitment to himself. I find it's rather the opposite. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what Christian discipleship looks like, a life that's ready for the kingdom, a life that's ready to follow me, look to Elisha, the would-be follower, in the Gospel of Luke says, "'I would follow you, Lord, but.'" And that's the key phrase there, that's the key. Where Luke 9 saying goodbye is an obstacle to following Jesus, in First Kings 19, it functions as the entry into kingdom service. There is this humble simplicity and this childlike spirit to Elisha's response. He is a normal guy, working in the fields, and the Lord's call meets him, and it changes his life forever. Elisha goes back to sever his connections, not to delay his commitment, but to cut all ties with his previous life, which leads us well into our second observation of the weight of the call. So we first look at the person, now the weight of this call. We read in verse 20 that he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate." We remind ourselves the relative, weight, uh, the relative wealth of Elisha. Like I said, 24 oxen was, was really prosperous. There was a lot of money, and Elisha's level of comfort with that wealth was, was significant. Uh, so significant that the degree of the mantle of the prophet would totally shatter. Elijah makes a curious statement here, seemingly with less gumption than what Jesus says. He just says, go back again, for what have I done to you? But Elijah's response again reminds us of who this call is ultimately from. Elijah puts the responsibility on Elisha for making this decision without any manipulation Elisha must make this choice and in choosing to take up this mantle, he begins to feel the weight of the Lord's call. How must this have felt for Elisha, the suddenness of how God captures you in his mission and meets you face to face? And now Elisha is willing to forsake land, country, property, and family for the sake of the mission of God. Consider for a minute what Elijah is asking of Elisha. I want you to leave behind wealth, status, family, friends, your livelihood, and the comfort of all those things. For what? What's the return on investment here, Elisha? Well, let's look at Elijah's life so far. He's had to stand up to the king and rebuke him. He's had people seeking to kill him from all around. He's had to execute justice against the prophets of Baal. Not always fun. He's been chased out of the country by the queen seeking his life. He's had to hide in the desert and he's been in utter loneliness and despair in a cave. He lives a life of poverty, utter loneliness, and consistently on a knife's edge from all of this ending, from all of this ending in death. This is the life I'm inviting you into. Elisha, wanna come along? The text continues to communicate that Elisha does much more than merely kiss his mother and father goodbye. Rather than putting his hand back to the plow or looking back, he completely obliterates the plow. This is his burn the boats moment. There is no turning back. For Elisha, in grasping the call of the Lord, he comes to realize that that God's call is not just an add-on to life. It's not even a, a primary motivator. The call of the Lord must dominate everything else, must dominate things so much so that a whole and entire sacrifice from his previous station in life is required. For Elisha, the weight of the call demands a certain response, and the first implication is a voluntary and complete break from his former calling. A voluntary and complete break. And just to be clear, at the risk of believing this is just some unique prophetic calling or just for us up here in the funny robes, Remember how Jesus uses this as a model for those who are fit for the kingdom of God. Not only is the one who looks back to the plow to not fit for the kingdom, but Jesus also tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus also says, any of you who does not renounce all things cannot be my disciple. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once put it plainly, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, am I saying after this service, you need to go and, you know, check out all your savings and give it away somewhere? Or am I saying you need to renounce your medical practice and be a missionary? Perhaps for some it's worth you know, considering that radical call, but I want to be clear that I'm, I'm primarily not asking you to do that because I do not think this is what the Elijah narrative is demanding of us. What the Elijah story has shown us thus far is that it's not simply that this collective nation is rebellious, but it's that the hearts of the people are sick and they need healing and turning at the pinnacle of the Elijah narrative, just one chapter back, just one page to the left, in chapter 18 with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Elijah tells us why this miracle is happening. That's always nice when they tell us why this is happening. In 1 Kings 18, verse 37, he says, answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, what does it say there? Does it say can rain down fire from heaven and burn up this bull? No." That's not what it says. He says that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. At the center of the Elijah story then, it's not simply a bull on the altar before God, it's not just simply proving that I can do a miracle, but it's the hearts of the people are presented on the altar. And it's these rebellious, idolatrous hearts that Elijah devotes his ministry and life to. So it's worth reflecting in our own hearts the weight and implications of God's call over your life. Is he your treasure? Does he have all of you? Because here's the thing, so long as your heart, your very life remains off the altar, something else will be there. Something else will be. So what might that be for you? You Money, career, success, image, a relationship, your family, a life of ease and pleasure, of course, not all bad things in the slightest, but when they are our treasure, when they are on the altar before God, when they are sacrificed before God, before our very hearts, we've missed the point and we've missed the call of discipleship to offer our lives before God. As we see with Elisha, when we grasp the one who calls us, When we grasp that, we grasp the response. And how even more so on this side of the cross? Much more than a mantle of leadership laid down, the God of the universe lays down his life for you. He saw you when you were weak and unable to help yourself. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that his righteousness might stand in the place of my sin so that when a holy God looks at a sinful me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. I am forgiven. All of my insecurities, anxieties, all of my sin is covered and I can stand before a holy God. There is no greater weight in the universe than the love of the creator of that universe calling you into his kingdom with the cost of his own blood. No one grasps this better than the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, 7 through 9. Paul just says, but whatever gain I had, the wealth, the status, the security, the image, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Does that describe your call? So long as our hearts remain off the altar, we cannot grasp the weight of this call and its implications. So long as something else is our treasure, we place a hindrance to our faith. So long as we feel we have been forgiven little, we will love little. So long as we hold on to the trappings of sin, Jesus has every right to say, depart from me, I never knew you. But when that weight of that call makes its way into the depths of our hearts, our old hearts of stone, desiring the things of this world and what we can get out of it, are burnt up and created into new hearts, where we become new creations where the old has passed away, and behold, the new has indeed come. As one pastor says on this passage, the very instruments of the oxen must be given up. Every weight, every besetting encumbrance must be laid aside and hewn in pieces. A whole and entire sacrifice is what the Lord desires for his altar. One last small but deeply vital aspect to this call, and that is the implications of this call. So we've seen the person the weight and now the implications of the call. If we have done this, if we have laid down these trappings, laid down our lives before God and his kingdom, we should ask what type of people will we become? Last sentence in our passage. Then he arose and he went after Elijah and assisted him. A better translation here would be he ministered to him or he served him. We at last come full circle in the Elijah story we remember that Elijah, for his entire ministry, has been doing all of this alone. And at the depths of his despair in the cave and the wilderness, he cries out to the Lord, I, al- I alone, Lord, am left. For Elijah then, the depths of despair was not so much his doubt that the Lord existed, but it was more so just the lack of someone, the lack of anyone to do this ministry alongside. But now, Elijah is no more alone. He has moved from the cave back into the harvest field, from the pit of death back into life, from utter loneliness into friendship. It's a beautiful thing and so true to life that often the biggest miracles in life and most powerful evidences of God's presence is not so much God showing up in a burning bush or raining down fire from heaven on the altar, but it's in the people that he places in our lives at opportune times, those whom he calls to walk this pilgrimage of life together and to minister to one another. Often in our callings, we want to rise to a position of leadership, to run a program. We want some sort of recognition. But the Elijah story reminds us that in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of a society in disrepair, and for the readers, of the histories of the kings, looking back, wondering what in the world happened, to Israel and Judah? It's a reminder that God has not neglected his people. God has not neglected his word. Yes, sin still reigns and we reap the consequences of sin all around us throughout history. But God's word still moves and his redemptive plan is unfolding. And we know this through the people that God calls. He is calling a people. He is calling you to be a part of this and calling us to serve one another. This is just a reminder that we do not do ministry to to programs or to institutions or things in general. We do ministry to people. We care for, we serve, we disciple, and we invest in people. Over the course of the Elijah story, and especially here in these chapters, here in the midst of a dark point in Israel's history, we've seen Elijah go from a character marked by isolation and death to a one remark, marked by relationship and life. Elisha emerges as this first and chief of the remnant of 7,000 that God will preserve despite the brokenness that came before and will come after these prophets. And so the clouds still linger on the horizon for Israel, and the thorns and the thistles may surround us in our modern world. Yet hope still remains on the horizon, and it's within the people of God who respond to God's external call, and who in the midst of their normal lives, their ordinary lives, respond to this extraordinary call from God. And we serve and love one another as Christ has served and loved us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray along with Paul that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love. Help us feel the weight of that call, Lord, that we may repent, we may turn our hearts to you, perhaps someone in here for the first time. Give us courage and strength to recognize those areas in our lives that we have yet to surrender to you. and Give us the wisdom to come alongside others in this lonely world and minister to them, encourage them, spur one another on in this faith. We ask all this in your son's name, amen.